Our reading for today is Acts 2, verses 14 and 36 through 47. Listen now to the word of the Lord. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Um, as Pastor Dohi just mentioned, it's been 20 week, 21 weeks uh, since we last gathered together physically for worship. Of course, I'm thankful for the technology that enables us to gather, though we cannot be together. I'm glad that we are able to do this virtually, but I don't want you to get too used to it. My desire in this series of sermons on worship is to increase your longing and anticipation for the day that when we can all gather together again in worship, and now as we make preparations to start to regather, to recorporate, to be rebodied, to be remembered as a church, um, I hope that you will uh, stick around later today after the service uh, for our town hall meeting where we'll go over our plans about what that's gonna look like and answer any questions that you may have. Uh, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you once again uh, for this time that we have together to come into your presence. May the words of my mouth now and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our God, our rock, our redeemer. Amen. As I've mentioned for several weeks now, the dictionary defines worship um, in three ways, which fit well with the way the scriptures talk about worship. We've looked at the first and third definitions of worship, that worship calls for a particular posture of the body, such as kneeling or bowing in reverence. 
as well as a particular orientation of the heart, of the entire life, your whole being toward God. And we saw last week that we come to worship, to seek the face of God. And so we must come with an appropriate sense of awe and reverence, with clean hands and a pure heart. As Hebrews 12, 14 says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so starting today and for the rest of the summer, I want to talk about the second part of this definition, the second aspect of worship, that is a form of religious practice with its creed and ritual. Worship is what we do together every Sunday morning in response to God's revelation of himself. We respond together in thankfulness and joy, in appropriate awe and reverence to the King of glory, to the maker of heaven and earth, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is worship. Different churches over the centuries have done this differently, but most share some common elements. The early Christians were, of course, all Jewish, and so their worship naturally followed the patterns of Jewish worship services. But over time, Christian worship services became distinctive and diverged from the patterns of the Jewish services. Christians continued to worship God, but now they did so through and centered on Jesus Christ. Christians continued to worship in the synagogues on Saturday, that is the Sabbath, and then gathered again the next day, what they call the Lord's Day or Sunday. Eventually, as Gentile converts dominated the church, the Sunday worship service centered around the Lord's Supper became the norm of Christian worship services. Now, we're not given a bulletin with an order of the worship service or a liturgy in the Bible that we can simply follow and imitate. We only get some hints, some scattered, partial, and brief glimpses of how worship might have looked like and how it might have evolved or changed. Christian worshiping communities were new, and they were just trying to figure this out. But from what we know from archaeology and history, Christians adapted synagogue worship. And this is what we know about synagogue worship in the first century. It consisted of six elements, prayers, confession, eulogies, or what we would call intercessory prayers, reading from the scriptures, a sermon or a homily, and a benediction. Prayers, confession, intercessory prayers, reading from the scriptures, a sermon, and a benediction. That should sound familiar because that's largely the form that we follow today in our services with the addition of, of course, baptism and communion. Our reading today comes immediately after the events of Pentecost, which Pastor Dohi just reviewed. You might recall that when she talked about it back in June, about how the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, they started to speak in other tongues. And Peter stood up to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And when he finished his sermon, the people who heard the message, the good news of Jesus Christ, they were cut to the heart and as a result, responded by repentance and were baptized. 
those who were baptized then worship together. I think we can think of baptism as the first act of worship in response to God in the good news of Jesus Christ. Baptism is the initiation rite by which people entered into the life of the covenant worshiping community. This was new and even a radical departure from the understanding of what it meant to be the people of God. From the very beginning, going all the way back to Abraham, the rite of initiation into the faith community was not baptism, but circumcision. In Genesis 15, God first establishes a covenant with Abraham, or more literally, God cuts a covenant with Abraham and his descendants by passing through a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch between the animals that Abraham had cut in half. I know this sounds odd, but cutting an animal in half and so cutting a covenant was the ancient equivalent of signing your name to a legal document. In effect, those who cut a covenant together were saying, may it be done so to me if I break the terms of our agreement. So by passing through the cut animals himself, God places the penalties upon himself if it were ever to be broken. Then in chapter 17, God gives Abraham the sign of circumcision, another form of cutting a covenant. And by this mark, Abraham binds himself and all of his future descendants into this covenant, consecrating himself and his descendants to God to serve God and to be a blessing to all people. Circumcision was a sign that you belonged to God and to God's people. Without it, you were cut off from both God and from the people of God. It's practically a sign of your salvation. And over time, this became an ethnic marker as well as a religious one. It's important, however, to remember that God's intent for this mark was not one of ethnicity, but of a commitment to the covenant of God. Non-ethnic Jews could join the faith community through circumcision. So for example, in Exodus 12, it says, if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. Since most of the early Christians were Jews, they had all gone through this ritual on the eighth day of their birth as the law prescribed. However, as the gospel spread and non-Jews and Gentiles started to follow Jesus, circumcision, as well as other aspects of Jewish identity, such as their dietary laws, became questions of contention. And the early church debated and rightly concluded that circumcision was not necessary to join the new covenantal community in Jesus Christ. The church realized that they could not, they must not place any additional and unnecessary burden to the gospel, to salvation by faith and faith alone. And we can see the declining relevance of circumcision in the way Paul treated two of his co-workers. In Acts 16, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father 
was a Greek. Paul had the half-Greek Timothy get circumcised purely as a pragmatic matter in order to do ministry more effectively. Then in Galatians 2, defending his ministry and the gospel, Paul writes, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Paul testifies that circumcision is not any sort of prerequisite to be acceptable to God. His overall argument is that the gospel is not a matter of ethnic privilege, that circumcision is irrelevant in light of the new covenant in Jesus Christ, which the one spirit of God establishes and enables. And so the church rejected circumcision and instead adopted baptism as a kind of replacement. And Paul makes this argument in Colossians 2. He writes, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism is a circumcision made without hands. Through the waters of baptism, you enter into the circumcision of Christ. And Paul is picking up on this idea of circumcision as a sign or as a metaphor. God first introduced ideas back in Leviticus 26, where God said, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me so that I walk contrary to them, and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. God makes it clear here that the ritual of circumcision is secondary to what it represents. That is an obedient and humble heart. And Moses picks up on this idea when he urges the people to follow God in Deuteronomy 10, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. To be uncircumcised then in the heart is to be stubborn and to be disobedient. Now Paul says that we were all circumcised. That is, we were made right with God by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in his baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul effectively transfers the covenantal promises from circumcision unto baptism. This is why Jesus told John the baptizer to baptize him. As a sign of cleansing, John knew that Jesus did not need it. But Jesus, Jesus said to do it to fulfill all righteousness. It signified his identification with the renewed people of God. Similarly, we are baptized by faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And our old life is buried with Jesus in his death. And then we are raised to new life in Jesus Christ. The baptism of believers in our reading today is the first of many such baptisms in the Bible. If you read through the book of Acts, and as you can see in this list, the church obeyed the last commandment of Jesus, the Great Commission, to baptize everyone in the name of the triune God. 
so that when people came to believe in Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Belief and baptism always went together. In Acts 2, you just heard about 3,000 people from throughout the world were baptized. Parthians and Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judeans, Cappadocians, people from Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, Samaritans, notably men and women, the Ethiopian eunuch who comes from a very, very faraway place and is a foreigner, Cornelius and his household, a Roman centurion, non-Jewish God-fearer, Lydia and her household, a woman, an European, an unnamed Philippian jailer and his entire household, Crispus, a ruler of the synagogue and his household and many other Corinthians, and in Ephesus, 12 former disciples of John were also baptized after they came to believe in Jesus Christ. All who came to believe in Jesus were marked by the waters of baptism. And as you can see, it didn't matter what their background was, what their identity was. Male, female, rich, poor, Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, Roman, Greek, free, slave, it didn't matter. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Baptism points to the fact, to the new reality, that the new people of God, this new covenantal community of God, is no longer defined ethnically or geographically. It is far more inclusive, not the least of which is the fact that women, unlike in circumcision, are baptized as well as men. The community of God is whoever and wherever people believe in Jesus and in response are baptized. Now I wanna be clear and very clear that you are saved by faith and faith alone. Baptism is no more a prerequisite for salvation as is circumcision. Apart from faith, baptism and all other rituals of worship are mere superstitions and completely useless. However, the book of Acts and the New Testament are quite clear that those who repent, that those who come to faith in Jesus Christ, seek and receive baptism. It is a sign by which you identify with the people of God, the sign by which you commit yourself to the life of the church, the sign by which you receive the gracious mercy of God. Our book of order says this about baptism. Baptism is the sign and seal of our incorporation into Christ. In baptism, we participate in Jesus's death and resurrection. In baptism, we die to what separates us from God and are raised to newness in life in Christ. Baptism points us back to the grace of God expressed in Jesus Christ, who died for us and who was raised for us. Baptism points us forward to that same Christ who fulfilled God's purpose in God's promised future.
So let me remind you again today, as Pastor Dohi said, it's so important to remind each other of God's good promises. You belong to God in Jesus Christ. You have been baptized into the new life made possible in Jesus Christ. We worship because by grace, we have come to know the mercy and the forgiveness of God. And baptism is given to us to remind us of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Let this sign always be an encouragement to you. The Heidelberg Catechism teaches us this. Sacraments, that is baptism and communion, are visible holy signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by our use of them, he might make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel and seal that promise. And this is God's gospel promise to grant us forgiveness of sins and eternal life by grace because of Christ's one sacrifice accomplished on the cross. Baptism is the sign of God's promise. Don't forget that. Remind each other of that promise. No matter what you may be feeling, no matter how you may think about your own faith, God's promises are certain. They do not change because God does not change. You are his now and forever. As Augustine said, it is a visible form of an invisible grace. The waters of baptism are physical reminders that you can see and touch of God's unchanging love. You know, one of the best things about being a pastor is that I get to hold the youngest members of the church and baptize them by faith into the body of Christ and into the family of God. I especially love the baptism of infants because it witnesses to the truth that God's love claims people even before they are able to respond in faith personally, that the faith of those around us can bring us to faith. And I love the fact that so many of you have witnessed the baptism of our children and that you get to be a part of their nurturing in the faith, that we get to live out the promises that we make to God to that child, to their parents, and to one another in the waters of baptism when we worship together. We've had some recent births in the recent months in our church family, and it's unclear when we will get a chance to witness their baptisms. The Book of Order says that children of believers are to be baptized without undue haste, but without undue delay. We are in a state of undue delay but I'm hoping it ends sooner than later because as you know, even though I've been working out, I'm afraid that some of the babies are gonna get too heavy for me to hold for a long period of time. I long for the day when we can get together and we can, we can all hold the young ones in our church again. So while we wait, while we wait to participate and witness baptism once again, we can remember our baptism remind each other of our baptisms and live in the confident joy of what Christ has done and of what it reminds us. We can practice our baptism every day 
that is to die to our old selves and to live the new life in Christ, to let the spirit of God live in us and bear good fruit. Remind yourself and remind those around you that you have been baptized, that you have been claimed by God, marked and sealed by the spirit of God as his forever. Let the waters of baptism remind you. In the name of Jesus Christ, on the name of Jesus Christ, into the name of Jesus Christ, you have been washed and made anew. Believe the good news and be at peace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you especially for the waters of baptism, for the reminder that you have claimed us for yourself and that nothing, absolutely nothing, shall separate us from the promises that you have made to us. Help us to believe that word, to come in faith, to trust you, and let us remind one another that in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. And let the waters of baptism wash over us again and again and again, reminding us of your steadfast and unchanging love. For it is in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.